The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Can I tell you one other thing? I mean this. Not to try to play off hello friends. But to you, everybody in the college game, my CBS family, my family, all the viewers, thank you for being my friend. Jim Nance with his final words on his final college basketball broadcast after 32 Final Fours and National Championships at CBS. Uh, UConn is the national champion, and it wasn't close. And it didn't stay under as I wished it would have. Uh, going over by just a few points, winning 76-59. to UConn rolling uh, to their fifth title since 1999. That's damn close to blue blood material. Uh, I've been saying for several years, I think the Blue Bloods are, especially if we keep it to you know four heads on a Mount Rushmore, Kansas, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Duke. Uh, but if we were to expand it beyond the top four, at this point, it would be hard not to include UConn in that conversation. I mean, five titles since 1999. One each in each of the last four decades. Uh, That is blue blood material. Look, they've got five since 1999. Duke, Carolina have three. Kansas has two. Kentucky has just one. So if you, you know, go on at least, you know, quarter century runs, The last quarter century, UConn is the blue blood in terms of national championships. Um, Overall wins and losses would go to one of those four schools during that period of time. But UConn, man, fifth championship. By the way, during this century, the eighth for the Big East, tying the ACC with eight. The Big 12's got three. The SEC's got three. The Big 10 this century won national championship. That was Michigan State in the year 2000. Uh, Maryland counts as one of the ACC's eight championships uh, this century. Duke's got three. Carolina's got three. Maryland with their uh, national championship in Virginia uh, with theirs. Um, The Pac-12 has none 
in this century. Their last national champion was all the way back in 1997 when Arizona won the national championship. Uh, but anyway, uh, UConn, really impressive last night. Um, they had a stretch in the first half where they held San Diego State without a field goal for over 11 minutes. And that was, for me, the decisive stretch in the basketball game. I mean, San Diego State got back to within five late in that game before Andrew Hawkins uh, knocked down a a massive three. Um, The DeMatha-Gaithersburg product really had a hell of a tournament and really showed that he is NBA potential um, for sure. Uh, But uh, that three pretty much snuffed out um, Jordan Hawkins. I said Andrew Hawkins. Jordan Hawkins um, knocking down that three. That pretty much snuffed out any hope that San Diego State had. They fought. Uh, they fought valiantly. But I really think the first half kind of took away any legitimate chance they had uh, to win the game. But San Diego State uh, you know, proves the theory that you've got to be able to score to win six in a row. The Gary Williams theory, which, by the way, remember, I got us down to four schools through my theory of offensive efficiency, top 15% in scoring, you know, your top scores being wing players, uh, and then having really good coaching. I had them in the final six, but I did not include Danny Hurley as a coach that I trusted in the tournament. He had lost in the first round the previous two seasons. So um, they were there per the metrics, uh, but weren't there per my subjective um, uh, criteria. Uh, Yeah, uh, UConn can score, and they didn't get tested once in this tournament. Average margin of victory, 20 points, as dominant as any champion we've seen in a long time, probably since Villanova in 2018. Uh, But, man, UConn uh, really did a number on the field uh, and never was tested. I mean, if you go back, it's the opener against Iona in which they trailed at halftime, but they won that game by 24 points. I I go back to that opening um, night of the tournament, and Rick Pitino at halftime being interviewed by whomever it was walked off the floor and talked about how great it was to be the head coach at Iona and how proud he was of the Iona team for 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 the way they had played and and building a two-point lead against the four seed in UConn. Like he must have known A, he was leaving, B, that they had no chance to actually win the game and that it was flukish that they were up by two. He didn't say you know, hey, uh, that's just one half. We got to play better, you know, in the second half, or we got to continue what we're doing. He basically took a victory lap for having the lead against UConn in the first round of the tournament. They got outscored 50 to 24 in the second half and lost by 24 points. Patino knew. Um, he knew that they weren't going to win that game, even though they had a two point lead. Uh, at halftime. UConn, really impressive. I had Gary Williams on the radio show this morning, and he was talking about Sonogo, the big guy who got uh, most valuable player of the Final Four. And he starts talking about the way they played inside out at times with him and how he was really effective with the ball in his hands and had a couple of moves. And, you know, Sonogo is about 6'9", 250, somewhere in that range. 
And I'm like, you know what? Now that you're describing him, kind of reminds me a little bit of Lonnie Baxter. And actually, I didn't think of it until Gary started to talk about the way Sonogo played. And then you think about his body type and that, you know, that 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 jump hook over the left shoulder. Um, you know, he had a lot of it. Good hands inside, big body. Lonnie was probably a little bit wider. I mean, I'm going to guess that Lonnie was six six eight six nine, and maybe two sixty two sixty five something like that. But uh, and Sonogo actually is a better you know, shooter, I think, than Lonnie was. Uh, but impressive win for UConn, for sure. By the way, um, in looking to next year, the all, you know, the way too early top 25s are out there. Um, Maryland, uh, Georgetown's not in any of them. Maryland's in a couple of them, and a couple of them they're not in. Um, I've seen them ranked as high as 20th and then 22nd. I think Jeff Goodman have had them. I think ESPN, they're not ranked at all preseason right now. Look, this is going to change significantly based on the results of the transfer portal. But in looking at, and I just pulled up as an example, the ESPN all too early top 25 for next year. UConn's number one. Marquette's two, so two Big East teams. Duke's three, Kentucky's four, and Florida Atlantic is five. And in almost every all-too-early top 25 that I looked at, Florida Atlantic was in the top, you know, seven or eight in the country. Now that assumes that, you know, everybody that they have comes back. I mean, they could lose some players to the transfer portal, you know, but projected starting lineup is essentially all five of the starters that were in the final four game that lost at the buzzer to San Diego State. Uh, So FAU, a top five-ish kind of a team if everybody comes back preseason. I mean, we've seen these runs in the tournament before, you know, from the non-power fives, from the mid-majors. And, you know, you get, you know, the Butlers and, you know, in the early days, the Gonzagas um, and the Florida Gulf Coasts making Sweet 16s and Princeton made it. And, but, you know, the, you know, VCU's made it. Florida Atlantic makes it to a Final Four. But rarely do you see them like the following year. I'm not talking about Gonzaga. Gonzaga's built themselves into a powerhouse, even though they're not, you know, a, 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 in a Power Five league. I mean, they recruit five stars. Um, Butler's in the Big East. Florida Atlantic, top five team. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Like a true mid-major that, by the way, nobody had heard of before this year unless you were a Redskins fan and knew that Alfred Morris went to Florida Atlantic. And they're coming back next year if they bring everybody back with a top five-ish kind of team preseason. Um, Anyway, uh, UConn. Yeah, Blue Blood, sure. Add them to the list. They would be the one now. I mean, after winning this title the way they won it and then coming back as a preseason number one, number two, number three type of team next year, um, you know, five titles since 99, yeah. I mean, if there's a fifth Blue Blood, that's the team. The one that's had a chance to be that over the last, you know, 23 years, this century, really is Michigan State. But they can't get through to the championship game and win it. They've only done that once. But all of those Final Fours, every year in the tournament, you know, um, always a threat when they get to the tournament. 
Uh, they're the ones that, you know, certainly could have entered into that conversation, but they haven't won the title enough. They've only won it one time, so you can't put them there. Um, and that would be the one school um, that you would think about as it relates to, uh, you know, in addition to Duke, Carolina, Kentucky, Kansas, and now UConn, that would be the one. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't put Villanova into that conversation. No, they'd be in the conversation. But they're behind UConn. They have three total titles, only two during the period in which UConn's won five. Uh, all right. I want to get to um, a couple of things real quickly, and then we've got two guests on the show today. Matt Paris from the Washington Times will join us in the next segment. We'll talk uh, commanders with him, and then Keith Ergo is going to jump on to the show with us uh, at the end. Keith is the head coach at Fordham. He was an assistant at Villanova, an assistant for nearly a decade at Penn State, and he is a local product. Went to Gonzaga here locally, grew up in a huge family from Bethesda. A lot of people uh, in the area know the Ergos. And Keith's journey as a head coach has been an interesting one. So we'll talk a little bit about the national championship, a little bit about the tournament, a little bit about his run at Fordham this year where they went 25-8 and in his first year. Uh, totally turned that team around. Surprised that that team didn't get an NIT bid. Uh, but Keith will be our guest, uh, will be my guest at the end of the show. The show today presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag or MyBookie.com. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and MyBookie will allow you to cash in and cash out quickly. So we've been talking about the benefit of that for the NCAA tournament. Well, let's go one more weekend with that because it is Masters week. If you want to bet the Masters, if you want to bet golf all weekend long as you're watching it, which I will be, on ESPN, which Scott will be intimately involved in the uh, coverage of the Masters. He's down there. He will join us. I'm hopeful he'll join us tomorrow uh, on the podcast. Um, But if you want to bet the Masters, get in and get out at the end of the weekend. MyBookie is the place to do it. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code KevinDC, and you can bet the Masters every which way you want to bet the Masters. Right now, by the way, Scotty Scheffler, the favorite at MyBookie at plus 680. Then it's Rory at plus 710, and John Rahm at plus 890. I kind of feel like this may be Rory's time to win at Augusta finally. Uh, But it's going to be really interesting to see some of the live guys back uh, and should be a fascinating week at Augusta. If you want to bet it and get in and get out quickly, betting your deposit amount just one time before being eligible to cash out, go to mybookie.ag and use my promo code KevinDC. All right, so um, there's no real news on the ownership front uh, today. However... Someone spoke uh, as a prospective owner of the Washington Commanders for the first time. We have not heard from Josh Harris. We haven't heard from Mitchell Rails. We haven't heard from Steve Apostolopoulos. We haven't heard from Tillman Fertitta. We haven't heard from Jeff Bezos on potentially buying the Washington Commanders. But we did hear this morning 
from Magic Johnson. He was a guest on the Today Show. Craig Melvin, uh, who works for NBC and the Today Show, he's the one that, you know, part of that disastrous 2-2-22 unveil wasn't his fault. Um, He asked Magic Johnson about potentially being a part owner of the Washington Commanders. Here's what Magic said. Before we let you go, as a, as a, a, a lifelong Washington uh, football fan, right. mm-hmm. the prospect of Magic Johnson uh, being a part owner of the football team that I've loved since Doug Williams was quarterback in the late 80s, what, what are our chances of, of, of you? What, 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 come on, come on, you don't lose, Magic. You don't lose. You know, Craig, to your point, you know, I've gotten a ring in every sport. But I need a Super Bowl ring. Yeah. And I would love to be uh, the owner of the commanders, um, do not only great work on the field, but the work we could do with the city. Mm. Yes. Um, and I think that um, if they bless us, uh, Mr. Snyder blesses us with the opportunity to be an owner, it would be an emotional day for me. Yeah. And my father just died, so it would be, it would be a great moment for for the Johnson family, as well as Josh Harris, who is the lead partner in this, to to take that franchise and, and take it to another level. So I'm happen. excited about it. And, and another African-American owner. Yes, that's it. You, you and MJ. Yeah. Uh, Magic Johnson, this morning on the Today Show, speaking on behalf of himself and the Josh Harris bid, uh, saying that he hopes Snyder uh, sees fit to give them the team make them the winning bidders, and how excited he would be to try to win a Super Bowl in the NFL as an owner. Uh, take this team to the next level. Take the Washington Commanders. He said, "I wish he had, you know, said take the team that plays in Washington." And winked at Craig Melvin as if to say, "Don't worry, we're not keeping this dumb name." Uh, he didn't do that, uh, but I don't think it means that they're definitely keeping the name either. But for the first time, we've heard from somebody that could be. Uh, the new owner or one of the new owners of the team. It would be it would be really cool to have Magic Johnson as one of the owners of the football team. Uh, I would be excited about that. I've always been a massive Magic fan. Uh, but anyway, there. Uh, Magic Johnson this morning, the first of the bidders to speak about potentially owning the team. Uh, real quickly, before we get to Matt Paris and we talk some football, um, the women's final on Sunday, we, we kind of guessed yesterday that this was going to be the most watched uh, women's basketball game. I mean, pro college doesn't matter in history. Well, it was, and it was by a wide margin, margin, 9.9 million viewers to the LSU Iowa final. Good God. That outrated three of the elite eight games in the men's bracket. That outrated Alabama K-State in the Sugar Bowl. Outrated ten- Tennessee Clemson in the Orange Bowl. All right? It, it was in the neighborhood of the NFL on a holiday. The Raiders-Steelers game on Christmas Eve night on the NFL Network, okay, understood, did 10.9 million viewers. I mean, the NFL on holidays is like gold. And this game did a hundred, uh, did a million less than that did at 9.9 million. 
I mean, amazing numbers, amazing momentum for women's college basketball, women's basketball in general. And as I mentioned yesterday, they should be setting up right now, LSU, Iowa, December, national TV, you know, uh, I, I suggested this morning on radio, you take that Army-Navy Saturday in December when it's just the Army-Navy football game and just the Heisman Trophy you know, presentation at night and there's just a ton of college basketball on. It's before the Bulls start and there's no NFL on that Saturday. You take that game and you plop it right in between the Army-Navy game and the Heisman Trophy presentation on ESPN or on CBS or wherever. Uh, that thing will draw a massive audience. They've got to schedule that game next year. Uh, all right, uh, let me get to Matt Paris next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This segment of the show is brought to you by Window Nation. Go to windownation.com or call them at 866-WINDOW-NATION. They've got a great deal going on right now. Buy two, get two free with no down payment, no payments, and no interest charge for two full years. So when you start paying for those new windows in 2025, you'll be paying half price. If your windows are 10 years of age or older, if they're drafty, if they're cracked and you need new windows, give Window Nation a shot. I've been working with them for 14 years. I promise you it will work out. 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. Mention my name. You'll get a free estimate so there's nothing to lose. Uh, joining us right now uh, is Matt Paris. Matt, of course, covers the team for the Washington Times. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matthew underscore Paris, P-A-R-A-S. Uh, you were out uh, with everybody in Phoenix last week, so I want to cover maybe a little bit of, of ground that's been covered, but I haven't covered it with you. So I want to get some thoughts on you on last week with Ron speaking and and some of the things he said. But before that, let me just ask you this as it relates to the sale of the team. Where do you think we are right now? Do you have a hunch? Do you have a, a good feel as to where we are on, on Snyder selling the team or not? God, I, I don't know. I mean, you would think it's winding down with at least you know two formal bids being made, I think that's good progress, but whether this actually gets done in terms of 
you know, the next owners' meetings in May. Who knows? Let alone the start of the season. So, you know, we're just kind of waiting along and don't have any idea. But it does seem to at least be uh, progressing a little bit. All right. Um, let's talk about last week because it sparked a lot of conversation back here when you guys were out there, and it's continued since you've gotten back. Um, so let's start with you know Ron more so than than Martin. What do you think we learned as it relates to whether or not there will be a quarterback competition or not? Uh, you know, I think they're going to have one, but I think they would like Sam Howell to win the job. I mean, we'll see what they do in the draft and who they bring in there. I don't expect them, even though Ron said that drafting a quarterback at 16 was a possibility. I don't necessarily know if I believe that. Um, no, I, I think they're going to give Howell every shot to win this, and if he holds up all right, then, um, you know, should be, he'll probably be the, the week one starter. Did you find it odd how hard Ron pitched Sam, talking about, you know, mock drafters and where he should have been drafted and where they had him? And, you know, he told Albert Breer for the Monday morning quarterback that two of the scouts had starter grades on him and projected second or third. Um, did that, how did that strike you? Um, yes and no. It's, it, it, I think that's just Rivera's like that's just how he acts so you know he's very much a, a salesman i was talking to ron after the the session with reporters concluded we all got one-on-ones um each outlet and so i was asking him about how and he mentioned how he wasn't going to be desperate and um so i asked kind of as a follow-up did, did you guys think you were maybe desperate last off season and then he pretty much proceeded to give the same pitch that he used with carson wentz how you know, he had the, the 22 to 7 touchdown to interception uh, ratio and then went into the whole spiel again, kind of as if he was selling Carson all over again. So uh, I think that's just kind of what he does with quarterbacks. He, he has a, a few lines that he wants to use and, and tries to sell the public on it. And when he tries to sell, he sells hard. Yeah, I agree with that. It sounded very much like he was pitching Carson Wentz all over again, not, you know, the same player, obviously, different player. What do you think he believes in his heart about Sam Howell? Um, I mean, who knows? I, I do think they are impressed with him behind the scenes. I, I think if they weren't at least willing to give this a shot, they would have tried to be a little bit more aggressive. I mean, I think Jacoby Brissett, in terms of kind of being a safe backup option, is a smart move. They got him on a reasonable contract. He played well last year, but... It is weird when you think about how this is a must-win year for Rivera and this whole staff next year, and if it doesn't work out, they'll probably be out of a job. So you know, they're putting a lot of trust in a guy with one career start. Yeah. Um, you just said something, and I know he told you this, that this is a big year for him. Uh, do you think he's um, – that he feels pressure – going into this year. Like, I think he told you essentially that this could be my last year. Do you think that this is like more resignation? He's at the end of his coaching career, and if it ends up extending to five years and he gets the fifth year because they do okay next year and new ownership wants to keep him on for that final year or not, or they go seven and ten and he's replaced, um, you know, do you, do you sense that 
he's feeling the pressure of like he better win this year or that for the lack of a better description, he's just resigned to whatever happens, happens, and he's okay with it. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think it helps him that he's been through this situation before in Carolina. You know, he got an extra year when David Tepper came in. Tepper came in 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 2018. Uh, Even though they didn't do particularly well that season, he still, uh, you know, kept his job for another year and then was fired before 2019. Uh, concluded. So I think he kind of knows what to expect um, when an ownership change happens. I, I think they realize that they need a big year, but he's, uh, you know, as far as how he wants to portray that, I mean, he's now talking about building the rest of the roster and if he's gone, leaving it in a good space for the next regime. I mean, I think, you know, he still obviously wants a job, but uh, I think he does understand the realities of this situation. And look, I mean, I think everyone does, you know, Jason Wright called it a must win year for Rivera as well. So I don't think they're shying away from this at all. Yeah. I guess, um, one of the thoughts I had, and I had Sam Fortier on the radio uh, show this morning and, and I, he was talking and he, he, he mentioned that remember last week when he was talking about sort of the battle between Sadiq Charles and Chris Paul, um, and kind of forgot that Norwell was even on the team. And there have been a couple of those instances where I've just had this feeling that, you know, he's been more of a CEO coach here in Washington than he was in Carolina, much more of a delegator, certainly with Jack Del Rio. And now, you know, he's essentially handed the offense from what we've been told, and I'm sure you have been as well, to Eric Bieniemy in terms of the associate head coach spot, assistant head coach, and the the autonomy that's supposed to come with it. And that he's a little bit less engaged in the day-to-day and the decision-making on the day-to-day. Do you get that impression or not? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think he's still involved with the how he wants things to operate. I, I do think he's given Jack Del Rio you know, some freedom to run kind of the, the schemes that he wants to run. I, if you remember with Scott Turner, when he was here, he, Rivera talked pretty often about how, you know, he peeked in on offensive meetings and gave influence there. So I think it's a mix, but I do think Rivera, as it relates, compares to Carolina, is in a better position um, to kind of give a big picture look uh, of things. He talked with me about how when he meets the next owner, he, he's going to give out, going to give kind of uh, a, a concise summary of what they've done, why they've done it, and then you know, looking ahead to the three, the five-year plan. Um, and, and he said that that was something that maybe he feels like he can do a bit better this time around, being in a role where he kind of oversees everything football rather than just being the head coach overall. If it comes down to Jacoby Brissett and Sam Howell battling it out and it's close, or let's just say Brissett, you know, ha- there's a slight nod there. Um, regardless of how it plays out, if it becomes a decision, like a legitimate conversation and a decision, who makes it, Ron Rivera or Eric Bieniemy? Oh, I think Rivera. I mean, he's still uh, the coach. I mean, I, I'm sure Rivera would listen to Bieniemy, uh, but at the same time, they put a lot of eggs in this how basket. So I think they would give him every chance to at least go out there. I, I think the bigger question is, how long is Howell's uh, leash once the season starts? And you know, with Brissett being a capable backup option, are they going to pull 
how like they did Haskins that one year. I think that's kind of more the question I have in mind. What do you think of Sam Howell and his chances to be a good quarterback starting good store starting quarterback in the NFL? Oh God, I don't. I mean, he was impressive in his lone start. Uh, I do think he was really kind of a project last year. The footwork in training camp was kind of all over the place. They said that that went better as the year went along. I mean, you know, the, the stats, if you look at that Dallas game, still weren't the most impressive thing in the world. But, yeah, I mean, you know, seeing that throw down the sideline to McCorn, how could you not be enticed by that? But uh, I think it is really kind of – I don't know how much of an upgrade I, – I, I'm not expecting it to be a huge upgrade over what they've had at quarterback, but we've said for a long time with the season that they can just at least get average um, – to above-average quarterback plays, and the rest of the roster should be in a good position to, to help support that. So, you know, I, I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, one more on quarterbacks. Um, you you touched on it a little bit, but do you think there's any chance, and you guys hammered him with questions on this, um, and, you know, part of the response was he hadn't even looked at the position yet, even though he wasn't ruling it out. But do you think there's any chance they, they look at quarterbacks seriously at 16? Not really, no. I mean, I, I think uh, even though they've handled offensive line in free agency, I think that's still probably a bigger need. They have a pretty big need at corner. I, I just think the rest of the roster is, you know, still needs some upgrades, and 16 would allow them a chance to fill those spots. So, you know, I, I think – if you told me the third round, I, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. But even then, I, I think you know you're looking more at day three, kind of in the later rounds, five and six, uh, to, to add a third quarterback. You know, um, Sam suggested like the, you know they they might look at quarterback you know after the first round. Can you imagine, uh, Matt, if they took a quarterback like let's just say a Tanner McKee like from Stanford in the second or third round, like that would be drama. I, it's not a first rounder. But- but here you've been talking about how you have a fifth rounder that should have been a first or a second rounder, and you stole them at the beginning of the fifth, and you've slapped QB1 label on them, and then if they were to go draft a quarterback in the second or third round, like to me, if they draft a quarterback in the first three rounds, by the way, I wouldn't have a problem with it at all, but if they do that, they're, they're telling you what I think is true, which is they have no idea about Sam Howell. Right. Oh, no, I mean, look, I mean, if they were super confident in Sam Howell, if they, you know, one, he wouldn't have fallen to the fifth round if they liked him that much, and he probably would have played sooner if, you know, he, you know, had shown any signs of progress uh, sooner. So, you know, it was it was one career start. I think he showed a lot in that game, but um, I don't blame people for being cautious with him at all. Three weeks from Thursday night, they'll be on the clock at 16. Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe they trade back. Doubtful that they trade up. Do you have a guess right now on a, a, who they take in the first round or a player that you'd like to see him take at 16? Uh, not particularly. I mean, Joey Porter has been the one that's kind of been linked in every mock draft. I don't think someone like Christian Gonzalez uh, will fall. I, I do think it's really interesting what – might happen if one of the tackles falls to them, um, like the uh, the Georgia tackle, Broderick Jones. Broderick Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if he's there, I mean, you know, 
Charles Leno is very cuttable from a salary cap standpoint. You know, they would save $8 million. Um, and so, you know, if they feel like they have their left tackle, maybe they do that. But um, I'm just kind of interested to see how it shakes out. But in terms of whether I really like one prospect or another, I, you know, I haven't really, frankly, I haven't looked at it <laughs> as much as I probably need to, even though we're three weeks out. Do you believe, um, as I do listening to Ron talk about tight ends, that they don't feel they need one in the draft? I think they believe that. I right. don't necessarily know if uh, <laughs> I agree with that. But, uh, yeah, you know, the, the fact that they haven't moved on from Logan Thomas, that they're really banking on him, uh, you know, returning to form after kind of a year where it was really disappointing that he wasn't able to, to show kind of what he did pre-injury. Um, you know, I, I think they're banking on him returning to that kind of form. I just don't know if that's, that's possible or realistic, rather. All right, two uh, chase questions to finish up with. The first one, yeah. uh, not as controversial. Do you think Chase Ruye's on the opening day roster? Um, I, I would lean. I would lean no, and it just depends on what his market would be and what the restructure is. I don't think he's on the roster at that number. It's just whether a question of. What do they, if they can agree on an extension, or not an extension, but a restructure, and if they can't, then yeah, he's going to be gone. I would lean towards no. I think um, Nick Gates gives them a fallback at center, and they also retained um, Tyler Larson, and they could draft someone there as well. So I would lean no. And the last Chase question for you is, do they pick up Chase Young's fifth-year option? Yes or no? Why or why not? Um, I, again, up in the air, you know, it, it's, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to do it in terms of, even though it's a big number at 17 million, do you really want Chase Young and Monta Sweat, um, to, you know, being in the expiring years and the last years of their deal? I think ownership, what Rivera alluded to is kind of a big factor here. You know, if they decline it and, Chase Young goes on to have a big year and suddenly he's a free agent. You have to use a franchise tag. A new owner comes in and is wondering why you didn't take care of Chase Young or pick up that option. I think that might look bad on, on this regime, but um, you know how they feel about Chase Young or whether Chase Young has done enough at this point to pick up the fifth-year option, uh, I don't know. I mean, from that standpoint, I would, I would say no, but I think they do it just because it, it there's a lot of reasons to do it. Don't you think? Don't you think his answer last week was kind of bullshit? This, you know, uh, this yeah. ownership re- relying on new ownership when they've already made you know uh, the biggest offseason contract extension on their own without new ownership, which was you know Duran's extension. I, I just thought that that was a, a pretty weak answer. Uh, I do. Uh, I, I think it. It was a weak answer from the sense of the money standpoint. You know, I think you could easily commit $17 million for, to, you know, the 24 bucks. I mean, that, that's presuming a lot, but uh, I, I think you would, um, you would do that. But, yeah, I, I think it's more so the, you know, what does the next ownership group think of Chase Young? He is a big-name player, and if you don't pick up that option and you potentially are, are having him in a contract year, 
and Chase Young, you know, balls out. I, I don't think that looks good for really anyone. So uh, maybe they they, they want to bounce that idea off the next ownership group rather than just the money. But yeah, it, it was a strange answer. All right, I lied. That was not my last question because I forgot. I wanted to ask you about your conversation with Jason Wright, um, where you asked him about the rebrand, a possible rebrand. I know he had some comments on kind of – uh, you know the the ownership situation and what the organization would will be like, you know, after the sale. Um, but let's start with you asked him. I think specifically whether or not you know another rebrand, pulling Commanders and starting over from scratch with new ownership was a possibility. What did he say? Yeah, he said no. That uh, specifically, I asked him whether he talked about. And it was uh, the idea with any ownership groups, whether any ownership groups have expressed interest in that. He said no, because they're business people, that they're focused on upgrading the business in other areas, like a new venue, and that basically not to focus on that because, you know, they're focused on championships and they don't know how much the rebrand, the rebrand would con- contribute to that. That's just, you know, more summarizing what he says, but uh, that, that was the gist of it. And what did he tell you as far as what new ownership would mean for him and the business of the organization? Yeah, he, he called it a substantial boost. Uh, you know, I, I think they're expecting a lot from, you know, fans who were sitting out on the sideline or had turned away because of the Snyders to, to come back to the franchise and have this kind of newfound energy and excitement, whether they, you know, deserve that or whether that will actually happen. Who knows? But I, I do think they are expecting, you know, he, he used the words uh, significant boost with me. He used substantial lift with uh, Ben Standig. Uh, you know, I, I think this is kind of their company line, and they're trying to generate some excitement or capitalize on the excitement from Dan Snyder uh, selling the team. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, on, on one hand, it's kind of remarkable that he is so open about that because he's essentially, you know, going public with something that I think most people know, which is the single biggest obstacle to revenue generation for this franchise in recent years has been the owner. I mean, corporate sponsors, big corporations that buy blocks of club seats and and and, and sweet holders have all said, look, if Dan leaves, we're back in. Uh, But that has been the single biggest obstacle. So there is this feeling, I'm sure, for Jason and everybody else out there that's responsible for, you know, P&L, for for revenue in particular, that if he goes, you know, they're going to be on the horn calling people who are going to say, that are finally going to say yes, because they've gotten a lot of no's over the last several years. Um. Matt, thanks so much. Really appreciate it as always. Yeah, no problem. Matt Paris, everybody, from the Washington Times, at Matthew underscore P-A-R-A-S on Twitter. Up next, we'll talk some college hoops, state of the sport, the national championship game last night, uh, and a lot more with Keith Ergo, who is from here. He is a DMV product, and he just finished his first head coaching season at Fordham, where they went 25-8. and That's next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors.
All right, jumping on with us right now is Keith Ergo. Keith is the head coach at Fordham University. He was in year one this year where he led Fordham to a 25-8 and overall record, their best season in forever, a third-place finish in the Atlantic 10. Uh, he was the A-10 Coach of the Year in his first year as a head coach. Keith has been an assistant everywhere, but really Penn State and Villanova are the two primary places where he's worked. Um, I watched him a lot on the sidelines, you know, he, as a Big Ten fan here in recent years uh, as part of the Penn State crew. And, by the way, I think that 20... 20 team, which would have made the tournament uh, with uh, with uh, that big power forward number 11, whose name is escaping right now. Um, uh, who am I thinking of, Keith? Why am I blanking on on Lamar Stevens? Lamar, Lamar Stevens, Stevens, thank Lamar you. Stevens. Who's playing Not in the NBA? Mention, we were tied. We were tied for second, third, third seed in the tournament, but tied for second in the Atlantic Ten. That's a big difference. Tied for, I slide that in. No, tied for second with, with a twelve and six <laughs> record, tied with Dayton and St. Yep, Louis yep. behind VCU yep. uh, in the A ten. That's hundred percent right. Tied for second. My fault. I need to read this, to redo this entire open, but I won't because we're we're all flawed. Um, but I do. You know that 2019-2020 Penn State team. I yep, thought you guys yep. had a chance. Like I, I'm a Maryland guy, so obviously that was Mark's best team, and, and it didn't get to go to the tournament. Yeah. But I thought Penn State and Rutgers were going to make runs in that tournament that year. Well, well, we we were top ten of them. We were ninth. We got as uh, high as ninth in the country, and we were there for almost four weeks. Right. We were we were as good as anybody, and uh, we were playing at a very very high level. Um, we beat your Maryland team a couple of times, I believe, not just once. But- that year, and we won at Michigan State. I mean, we won at Purdue. I mean, we had some ridiculous wins that Penn State wasn't used to. And the team was clicking. However, a couple of guys, including Lamar, the last, like, three weeks, we were convinced. I mean, something he was sick. and We had no idea if it was COVID or what the story was. But we lost, like, three of our last, like, four or five. But everybody was healthy. We had our big guy, Mike Watkins, out for the last two games of the regular season. We had our we'll never I'll never forget it. We had our our literally our two best practices we had ever had at Penn State leading up to the Big Ten tournament in Indianapolis. Our walkthrough, our shoot around was the first day because we had a we had a bye for like one of the first times in the history of, of, of Penn State right. in the Big Ten tournament. We had a bye. We were on the court in Indianapolis. It was the most energetic, passionate shoot-around we had ever had. Everybody in the arena was going crazy. We were pumping music. Our guys were so fired up to make a run. They pulled us off the court to bring, I think, Michigan and someone else to start their warm-up for the game that day, and everybody got pulled off that, that day. And it was a crushing blow because, you know, honestly, guys like Lamar Stevens, we felt like we got robbed in 2018 when we won the NIT and we beat everybody by, like, 25. It was almost like similar to that of UConn's run this year in the NCAA tournament. We mauled everybody on en route to an NIT championship at the Garden in 2018, where they only let four teams in in the Big Ten that year, which we felt was ridiculous because the Big Ten was as strong as ever before, as opposed to this year where I, I, nobody could understand how the hell they were getting the respect that they, they got this year. But 
Anyway, we felt in 2019-20 we were poised to make a run in the Big Ten tournament and then a big run in the NCAA tournament. They were projecting us around a fourth or a fifth seed, depending on what happened right. in the Big Ten tournament. Yeah, despite the you know the losing a couple of games at the end of the year, as you said, whether yep. it was Lamar being yep. sick or whatever it was, you guys were still heading in there. And, you know, actually, I'm going to ask you this, and we're going to get into the championship game last night with Keith and yep. his yep. rise uh, at Fordham and why the hell Fordham didn't you know get an NIT bid. Um, I have no idea, but I, I do want to ask you what I've asked just in the last few days. I asked Kevin Willard. I asked Gary Williams today. I asked John Crispin, who I had on the show the other day, Penn State guy um, and an ESPN yep. analyst. Uh, yeah. Why do you think, as someone who spent a lot of years in the Big Ten, why do you think yeah. the Big Ten has struggled so much in the tournament in recent years? Well, in recent years, I think they did better, quite honestly, than people kind of just project. It's just the ratio as opposed to everybody else in, the, in the, how many how many teams they got in. I mean, I thought they did pretty good in pre- recent years. Now, winning a championship or getting anybody in the, the Final Four, I think it has a lot to do with matchups. I think, you know, for instance, Purdue's situation, they had – uh, well, the kid Haas the one year get, breaks his elbow or something like that in the, in the first round or something crazy right. happens where that killed their momentum. They were poised to win the whole thing. They were ridiculous that year. Something always seems to happen with Purdue. Then obviously, they, you know, they foul up three against Virginia. Right. You know, percentages say that's what they should do, especially with their big. The miracle shot. You know, when the ball is tapped back, the half court prevents them from going to the final four. I think that was the Elite Eight game. It was. I mean, they, that, so, was the Carson, yeah. uh, that was the Carson Edwards game where he went for 42. Yeah, that was yeah. the year I believe they beat us in the uh, championship of the Big Ten. That might have been 2018 when they beat us in the, right. in the championship of the of the Big Ten tournament. Or maybe it's the semis. Anyway, so, I, I, you know, I think, one, it's the 20-game season. It's, it's a grueling the league is so good with coaches and scouts, and physicality is ridiculous in league play. Um, but then, it, you know, it also has to do with matchups. It just is what it is. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to to win in the NCAA tournament to advance. A lot has to do with matchups. A lot has to do with you know, kids. They're yeah. 18 to 22 years old. It's not that those teams aren't deserving. You know, they are. Most of the years, if you look at their resumes, I mean, it's flat out. They're most of the time they're 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 deserving, and and the problem is all you can really do is kind of gauge how leagues do November and December, and usually the Big Ten in most years, I mean, a lot of it goes down to the Big Ten ACC Challenge, how we doing that, and then, you know, obviously during the non-conference, the problem with that, that, that metric, and it's ringing true every year, is they weigh so much, so, so heavy on that November, December, uh, that, you know, in league play, the quadrants, so to speak, now with the net, they're already set based off of how the entire league right. did in November and December. Yeah. Well, if you add transfers, if you add you know young kids or whatever it might be, or injuries, I mean, a team is completely different than they are in November and early December as opposed to late February. It's not it's night and day. And they're weighing way too much stock on teams in November and December and how they do as opposed to, you know, February or in league or how they're finishing. It, the metrics make no sense. Um, so I, I think I think it has a lot to do with early early success, but also um, it's a, just a ridiculously tough league. They're physical as hell. 
the coaching is ridiculous, and, and a lot has to do with matchups. I mean, there's no real reason why. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to lose a thought here because we're going to end up bouncing around a lot here. But that's okay. No, I get so it. So the, the, this this time of year for your you know your business your profession is is so much different yeah. than it used to be. I mean, we have NIL. We have the transfer portal, which just is amazing. It's almost like free agency in the NFL. You know that begins actually while the tournament is still going on. But for you, at, long before that, quite honestly, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, middle of the year. I mean. People are recruiting, you know, yep. people in handshake lines. Um, exactly. So, what is it like for you at Fordham, where maybe yeah. the concern—not that it's not a concern at Maryland or Michigan State or UConn or or Duke or, or Carolina—but for 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 an A10 school, it's more about protecting what you have and not getting picked over uh, and yep. having people yep. leave. So, what is that like? It's tough. I mean, it's difficult. You're constantly re-recruiting your own kids. You know, that's why, I mean, most people are like, ah, relationships don't matter anymore. You just got to whatever. You just you think they're going to leave. That, well, that you could think like that and then just have to re, restock or, or uh, re-recruit every single year, <clears throat> reload your entire roster every year. Or you could think the way we think is develop such ridiculously authentic and real relationships with kids and their families that, you know, they're more interested in that than they are just taking off. And that's the way we kind of do things. However, you know, it's it's also a positive, right? You're at a place like Fordham in the Atlantic 10. You have an opportunity, especially now because we were successful with some of our transfers. So a lot of these kids are thinking, we're, we're sa- the Atlantic 10 is sandwiched between the Power 5 and maybe what they call mid-major and low-major. Right. Right? So, you know, if a low-major player or mid-major player wants to come up, but they look at the statistics and averages and statistics show, the majority of kids that make the jump to the Power Five don't even come close to the statistics. They drop dramatically in individual player statistics as well as minutes played. I mean, some are anomalies, but for the most part, everything across the board from minutes to production drops considerably. Now, if they jump to the Atlantic 10, it's not as much of a drop. It actually either stays or sometimes increases dramatically. And then if you have a Power 5 kid who wants to come down, well, he doesn't want to go any, fur- any further down than the Power 5. So the Atlantic 10 is like, you know, almost like a Power 5 conference, so they feel good about that. They can come down and they can have some success. So we're sandwiched. So for us, our league is kind of the perfect scenario for a transfer on either level. So, you know, but from, from trying to keep our current roster, it, it's tough because – you know, if you have any success at all, teams are poaching you. And quite honestly, it's it's they're they're not waiting anymore. They're 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 contacting kids in December and January, and it's just ridiculous. There, there's it's almost like there are no rules. But um, we have to re-recruit, and and that's where the NIL situation comes into play, because some of these these programs, these higher level programs, are offering these first year transfers first-time transfers, I should say, coming out and just throwing numbers at them that are absurd, that things like, you know, yeah. we can't match. So NIL comes into play because if you're not re-recruiting your current roster in April with NIL being at the forefront of it, you're going to lose your best players. It just is what it is, and, and that's just the nature of the beast. The problem is most of these guys are not getting what they've been promised in NIL money, and now they're already transferred one time. And we'll see if the NCAA really 
new kind of strict policy where they say waivers are going to be denied and things of that nature. They haven't in the past. So it'll be interesting to see if they actually adhere to that because this year will kind of be that test dummy. And if that's the case, kids are going to be sitting out, you know, thinking they transferred for a third time and, and or at least a second time, and it's, it's, it's going to be an absolute catastrophe. Um, you're listening to uh, Keith Ergo. Why am I having Keith Ergo? Because I did not do a good introduction. In fact, I, I botched the <laughs> introduction. But Keith Ergo, I'm not just having him on because he is the head coach at Fordham and he's the A-10 coach of the year, which is a good reason to have him on. But he's a local. He's from the DMV, grew up uh, in the area, part of a big family that a lot of people in this area know. Um, and a lot of people have followed uh, Keith's, uh, you know, trajectory uh, professionally from starting at Villanova as a video coordinator. And you can take us through all of it, you know, here in a moment or two. Um, And now he's the head coach at Fordham, uh, replacing Kyle Neptune, who took the job at Villanova when Jay Wright retired last year. I do want to, since I have you on, just talk real quickly before we get into you and your, your rise what did you think of last night? Like, did you give San Diego State at any point, either before the game or during the game, a chance? I did before the game. You know, I thought, um, you know, and I, and this is not, you know, you know most people say this, but we have a video coordinator, and he played for, for Danny Hurley at Wagner, uh, and he's awesome, Don McMillan. And I told him, I said, look, the way that Connecticut's playing right now, they are very similar. They remind me of the Villanova team in 2016 that just swept through in 2018. It's yeah. teams. I mean, just absolutely mauled teams. Uh, a couple pros. They won every game by like 20-something. They beat, I can't remember, Kansas by like 30 in the Final Four. Exactly. I, I, I told them that's what I see happening. They just what they just have too much balance, too much size, too much athleticism. Their guards, their length with Kid Jackson on the defensive end, He did, I, I, everybody was Miami's got the best one-on-one, and yes, Miami does. But Connecticut had, in Isaiah Wong, they said he is the best one-on-one player in the tournament. He is. But Isaiah Wong and Jackson was a great matchup. because, And the UConn guards are big, long, and athletic, and they had the length to, to prevent those guards from going off. I, I just They had every piece of the puzzle. They had ridiculous shooting. They have great depth. They have one of the best big men in the country, if not the best, as he's proven. They had great guard play. They just had all of the intangibles pretty much from one through eight to, to, to play at a very high level. San Diego State, they did have the length, kind of the size and the, and the physicality. But, I mean, as you saw defensively, they just couldn't score. Connecticut's defense was just so fantastic. Their length, their ability to switch one through five when necessary. Sonogo's, a, you know, he, he's much more mobile than people realize. So his ability to stay laterally in front of people when they came off ball screens. It just made everything really difficult for San Diego State. Yeah, I mean, their defense in the first half. I mean, we know San Diego State struggled to score, you know, as a team all year long. That 11-minute stretch without a field goal I really thought was (laughs) the deciding stretch. I know they got it back to five there. Um, at 60 to 55, and then uh, Hawkins hit that big shot, and then they never looked back. But um, did you do you know Danny Hurley at all? Have you coached yeah. against him, or how well do you know him? I know him well enough. I don't know him great. I know his staff very well. I know Kamani Young. I know Luke. I know Danny, uh, but I don't. I don't know them extremely well. I mean, I have you know uh, two guys on my staff that played at Pitt. One of which. Uh, played it for, for Bob Sr. at St. Anthony's, Trayvon Woodall, uh, was, 
you know, McDonald's All-American and played, I think, started three out of his four years at St. Anthony's for Bob Hurley. I have another, my video coordinator played for Danny and Wagner. So I know the family and I know him pretty well. I know his staff better. Yeah, I mean, I had Jimmy P on the show last week and he was talking about, you know, sort of the... um, you know, sort of the Danny Hurley story, which, you know, if you followed college basketball like I have my whole life, you know that, you know, at Seton Hall, what he went through with depression yep. and, you know, Bobby winning championships at Duke and the father and all the pressure that was on him. But, you know, Jimmy said to me last week, he said he's really calmed down and he's really figured out a new way to handle, you know, his players, his coaches. Uh, and it's working for him. And I asked him what he meant, and he went into to, into to a long uh, explanation. But do you know what he's talking about, and do you agree with that? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, there's no question. He, you know, you have to continue to adapt. He has definitely calmed down. If you watch over the side, course of the sideline, you know, course of his career on the sideline, he's calmed down dramatically. Even though he, this year, I, I think he had a couple of episodes, but. Um, you know, I, I do know his staff very well, and I know they absolutely love working for him, you know, and I think that's that's probably something he's adjusted to. He's not a micromanager anymore, which I'm sure it did. And when you first become a head coach, you can tend to be, as I'm, uh, as I'm aware of. Um, so I think he gives them a lot of autonomy, and he's got some phenomenal assistant coaches that are, you know, almost every one of them is capable of being a head coach right now. So that certainly helps out a lot. And then, you know, the relationship with your players, it is the most important piece of the puzzle at this point. And learning each and every one of them, not treating all of them the same, is probably the most, um, that's the most difficult thing for older coaches now who have been in it for a long time to adapt to at this point, because it is different on how you have to coach and handle each individual kid. It's a totally different situation now than it was five, ten years ago. I mean, you, you've kind of, through the discussion of NIL and transfer portal and having to re-recruit your own players, already given the answer to that. But what else is so much different than it was 10 years ago? You know, the, you know, the COVID situation, you know, it, everybody was afraid to talk about mental health for years and years and years, as was. Um, so, you know, it was very difficult for people to come out and say they were struggling. Um now with COVID, it's real. You know, if you experienced it, I'll be real with you. I didn't buy into a whole lot of it prior to COVID, but then I witnessed it firsthand with some of these guys. Like for instance, at Fordham, you know, you tell me they had two 30-day periods where they weren't allowed outside their dorm room in in in, in, in the winter time in December and January. Two 30-day periods. There was no basketball, no practice. They were in a dorm room, weren't allowed to come outside of the dorm. That's like jail. Yeah, it's impossible. Legitimate. So, so naturally, yeah, they don't get to go home. They don't get to – I mean, so mentally, these guys, they struggled through a heck of a lot. They didn't have very many social encounters. I mean, they took – they got two to three years in some cases of college completely removed from their lives. And they weren't even around their family, their friends. I mean, it, it was a, a pretty ridiculous time for some of these young adults. And as a result, there's more struggle and more need for mental health professionals inside college athletics than ever before. And it is real and it's happening on a daily basis. So you have to be sensitive to that. Whereas opposed traditionally, you could have been like, yeah, whatever, man, grow up, you become a man, that kind of thing. You cannot do that anymore. That's not how it works. And you're going to, you're going to find some major problems. If in fact you act that way. 
So you have to be sensitive to the mental health issue, and I think that has a lot to do with it. All right, let's talk about you. Um, you grew up in Bethesda. Tell everybody, you know, kind of before you got into coaching, uh, you know, I want to hear about the whole, um, you know, overseas thing that you did. Yeah. Uh, just kind of give everybody, you know, two minutes on Keith Ergo. Yeah, you know what? I went to, I'm one of 10, you know, so I went to Gonzaga High School. I played basketball, lacrosse, and football at an early age, but I played basketball, lacrosse at, at Gonzaga. We won a 1997 uh, WCAC championship uh, in both basketball and lacrosse. Then I went on to Fairfield University, played both for a couple of years. Uh, at Fairfield, and then I got involved with a nonprofit organization called Plank for Peace at the time, which is now Peace Players International, and that's run by. It was founded by Sean Tui, Devin Tui, right. and now is really Brendan Tui's baby. And and um, you know, so the, the very, most people in that area certainly know that the Tui family. Uh, and I got involved with that early on. Had a chance to to realize that. Sports, specifically basketball, was definitely my calling because working for them, it's kind of a, um, a nonprofit organization that used sports, but specifically basketball as a means of conflict resolution. So I had the opportunity to live in South Africa, and then I lived for a while, about a year, in Northern Ireland running the program. Wow. Uh, again, using sports to bridge divide. And that's now become a, a global organization, 20 years in the making, uh, in locales like South Africa, funded by the Nelson Mandela Foundation, uh, Northern Ireland, the West Bank, Cyprus, and now domestically, Nike, Gatorade. I mean, a number of NBA executives are involved. So it's a big, kind of like a basketball Peace Corps, you know. And then um, after that, I did a bunch of different things, taught real estate, all sorts of things, but found myself back at Gonzaga, working for four years under Steve Turner, who gave me my first coaching opportunity. I worked for four years. I was a head freshman coach for Gonzaga and then also an assistant on varsity. And uh, that's when I obviously got the itch to, to potentially get involved into college basketball. And, um, you know, that's kind of what happened. I, I, I knew some people at Villanova. I got the nod for an internship at Villanova, and, I, and the rest was history. Right time, right place. In 2000, what, 2007, 2008, we went to the Sweet 16. Then I became an ops, and we went to the Final Four in 2009, and then distant, and so on and so forth. So. That's kind of how the career started. You, I mean, it's really actually an amazing story because, you know, the the organization that you work for that sent you to all of those different countries, you know, Peace Players International, yeah. and, um, and I'm familiar with the organization now as well. I mean, what an education that was, you know, all of that travel. Um, and then you're in, you know, then you're in Happy Valley for how many years? I mean, how many you were you were at Penn State for how many years? I was there for 10 years, so Pat Chambers was the associate coach right. in 2009. He's the baby at 12. He and I, obviously, me being one of 10, we hit it off real quickly, came very close. But after our 2000, we worked together for two years. After 2009 Final Four, he got a head coaching job at BU. And I was going to go with him to get uh, to become an assistant get on the road. But Jay's like, no, 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 you're going to stay right here, do Oscar for a year, and then become an assistant for me for a year. And then, so that's what I did. You know, he, he's the he's the godfather, so to speak. So he, whatever you do, he's gonna make he's gonna make those decisions at that point. So when Pat won two in his second year at BU, Pat Chambers went to Penn State, and Jay's like, now it's time for you to go. You can help him build this program. Well, we got there in 2011, five months after we took the job. The Sandusky situation happened, and everything changed dramatically. Right. You're from there, there for right? that, right? And a lot of people. Yeah. So our, we had a three-year plan, five-year plan, seven-year plan. Well, everything was bumped back two years. 
people wouldn't even take our calls. I mean, people I knew in the business very well were like, listen, you got you to gotta give us at least six to eight months, maybe 12 months before we can bring guys on campus. And people don't realize that at Penn State. Some of them now don't even realize it. Our first three years, just to get dudes on campus after everything that happened was almost impossible. You'd be walking through an airport with the Nittany Line logo, and they would be looking at you like, you know, how dare you wear that, right? So, you know, um, it, it was very difficult for the very first couple of years, but eventually we got through it, and, and you know, we felt like we built something really special and sustainable that seemed to take off from there. Isn't it, you know, kind of in hindsight, a bit of a miracle uh, uh, when you think and consider how well Bill O'Brien did for those few years that he was there in the wake of that? He was incredible, man. What he did galvanized the entire community. I mean, you got guys like Michael Mowdy. Obviously, you know, you, you, you have so many big-time guys that decide to play for him. He, without, I, I promise you, now James has done a tremendous job and you know, Penn State football is what it is. But without Bill O'Brien during that year or two years, Penn State would have been in some serious trouble. I mean, he was, I mean, lightning in a bottle with him becoming the coach at that time. He held that entire university together through that football situation. Yeah, amazing uh, job that he did. All right, so you get the opportunity at Fordham this year when Kyle Neptune takes the job at Nova and they haven't won anything of note for, you know, lots of years. I don't think they've been in the tournament since when the early nineties, maybe Yeah, 92. 92. 92. Um, and in your first year, you guys go 25 and eight and finish, you know, as I told you earlier in this conversation, you finished tied for second uh, in the A-10. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so how did you, how did you do it? How did you pull that off in the, in your first year? Well, you know, I got an incredible staff. That's one. Uh, I got a bunch of guys on staff that are really good people that earned the right to be in the positions they are. They weren't guys that just got into it right after, you know, college or right after their playing days they all worked their way up from division two to low division one and uh guys that are from the area some that aren't but you know a guy like Dave paulson who just became the head coach at holy cross right. and just a really good mix of fantastic people that honestly just wanted to succeed they didn't really care uh, about stepping on each other's toes to get to where they were trying to get to which happens a lot in this business our staff was as tight as you can possibly be and then in turn you know the first year Kyle was the coach, we, we had a great year. It was 16-16, which is a great year for for for, uh, for Fordham. Right. But the one thing we were missing was uh, leadership from within that locker room, you know. And so we focused a lot this past summer um, on lead- building leaders and, and kind of empowering some of the older players to kind of take control of the locker room with a bunch of different ways and exercises, and, and they did that. And as a result, they connected really well. They held each other accountable. And I think that was the biggest difference, um, you know, for this particular team as opposed to last year. And then, you know, they really believed there was a mentality that everywhere they came from, they've been winners. And everybody on staff has been winners. Big East titles, national championships, all of our guys on staff came from nothing but winning as players and coaches. And that funneled into the locker room. So what Fordham was typically used to was just going into a game, hoping they're in, they're in sight inside that last four-minute timeout, maybe keep it close and have the other team make mistakes and they, they pull off a miracle. This team specifically went into every game believing they were the, that we were winning. 
there was ne- very rarely games where they didn't think that we had a chance or that we were supposed to win. That mentality alone. And then never in any game did they ever come into a timeout thinking we're not going to win, whether or not we were down 8 or 10 or up 8 or 10. They always felt like somehow we were going to find a way. That's kind of the way we felt uh, you know, at Villanova when I was there and then the last couple of years at Penn State. That mentality right off the bat for a program that consistently had been losing – Changing that mentality is worth 8 to 10 points every single game, and I think those are some of the reasons why we were able to turn it around. Why didn't you – how close were you to getting an NIT invite? Well, I think if it was in Madison Square Garden, like it was typically right. because of the, the reaction and because of the crowds we drew to Barclays Center, which was, you know, the biggest crowds in, 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 in Fordham history. I mean, Thursday night at the Barclays and Saturday were both the largest uh, gatherings of alumni and, and in Fordham history, which wow. is pretty cool. Um, and as a result, I, I think if, if the Final Four was in the Garden like it typically was, we would be a draw and it wouldn't even have hesitated, right? But I think as a result of it being in Las Vegas, they kind of chose to go with as many bigger brands that they felt could bring crowds for the first time in Vegas or somewhere kind of regionally. And, you know, unfortunately, they did, did none of those succeeded because uh, I, I don't think the numbers were very high at all. Uh, for the NIT. No. I think if it was local, it would have been a no-brainer. Right. Yeah, it, it, it did not work in Vegas, that's for sure. So, yeah. what and do you... And then the one thing, the yeah, one biggest ahead. issue they're telling us is our strength of schedule, which was the only thing that was poor. But we played all D1s, we beat all D1s, and you can't predict how teams are going to... So even Ivy League, any of the... When you, when you make a schedule in June and July, or even, even some of them were already done in May, well, you can't predict those kids leaving from their programs and them having to reload, you have no idea how the teams that you put on your schedule are going to, you know, are going to perform come, you know, 2022 and 23. So they kind of, they weighed heavily on our strength of schedule, but we didn't play any D2, any D3. We played all D1s. And then, you know, obviously we won 25 games and we did really well in the Atlantic 10. So, you know, I think our strength of schedule, this is where the net comes into play, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me Yeah. because our net was so low, apparently, that that's why we didn't get the nod. But, you know, you explain this to me. We beat Duquesne, who I love. I love Coach Deborah. We beat Duquesne twice, once on the road, once at home, for by a combined score, you know, total was like 30-some points. They're, at the end of the year, they're still ahead, and we, and, and we had, we tied for second. We had a Better overall record, better record in league, beat them twice, yet their net is higher than us. You explain that to me. No, I, I can't. How is that, the uh, yeah, there, sense? there were Put times. Ahead of us yeah. And say they're a better team. yeah, there were times this year where I, backwards, man. I would go through the net and I would be like, how is that team, you know, usually related to Maryland's position, how, how is that yeah. team, you know, ahead of us when we've beaten them twice or, you know, beaten them already. So no, that's part of the problem. So, and that's how they're, that's how they're voting these teams in. So, for, so for you, scheduling is so huge. I know it is for every D one coach. So what kind of philosophy scheduling will you have? And what do you have next year, you know, on, on the yeah. schedule and beyond in terms of non-con? It's, imp- it's impossible because, you know, uh, I, it's, uh, scheduling is a, a legitimate 20-minute 20, 20 conversation. So I'm not going to do that with you. It's, it's become outrageous and more and more difficult. Nobody wants to play Atlantic 10 teams in, in the non-conference if they already have 24 to 25 games locked in, 20 league games plus MTEs plus, you know, multi-team, uh, plus other, you know, showcase games. All the Power Five have those. So they're already 25 to 26 games 
deep before they schedule their five non-conference left. And they're not going to go ahead and schedule an Atlantic 10, which they might struggle with. It makes no sense. They need to get wins. So for us, I mean, we're in a, we're, we hosted our own MTE this year. We're in the Virgin Islands. We can't, you know, so that'll, that immediately will, will have some competition in it. We got three games that'll boost our net up. We, we have, um, you know, a couple of different games that we've already scheduled. One in the Barclays with a team like UAB. That'll boost it up. We have a, a series with Manhattan that'll boost it up. But, you know, we have some other teams that we're, we, we have a date in the garden. We're trying to get St. John's, obviously, which will boost it up. But, you know, again, it's hard. To, we have dates in Barclays and MSG every year that we tried last year to get high major teams, Connecticut being one of them. But none of them wanted to play. Providence, Rutgers, Seton Hall, none of these teams. And I don't blame it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them because they only need five to six non-conference games, and they need those games to be games where they're they're winning one, two. They're gaining experience for their young guys or or figuring out their route, you know their rotations because a lot of these teams have transfers. So you know it takes a, a couple of games that you need to win handily. So they're comfortable wins where you can kind of focus on some of the things that most people don't think about like rotations, like experience for your freshmen. And they're not going to play an Atlantic 10 team. Uh, what do you got coming back next year? We have a lot. So we have pretty much – we lose our you know our two all-conference players, but, um, you know, Khalid Moore, who was a transfer, and then uh, Darius Quisenberry. But we have a, a number of guys coming back. We, we have a great uh, freshman class coming in. We just got two tremendous uh, transfers – coming in so we're still working on a few different things but i mean we feel really really good about the athleticism and and the physicality and um and the production that we have returning it's it should be um a very high level high level basketball team which we're very excited we we should take the next step in our program and i think we will we have a number of uh, i think we have what five out of our top seven guys returning which is really important for us and and we've improved dramatically in the transfer portal and freshman class. All right, last one. You're coaching at a pretty prestigious university, and by the way, law school. And I would imagine since, you know, Fordham, I know they've got uh, teams in other sports, um, but they're not Division One level in a lot of the sports that they're in. So this is a big deal that Fordham went 25-8 and eight this year. Who did you hear from that we would be interested in? Well, you know it's funny. The WFUV, as you're aware, is one of the you know the, one of the best communication schools in the country. So, right. you know, guys like Michael K, Mike Brain, um, you know, uh, Brian Cashman came to a few games of the Yankees, and you know, Chris Carino of the Nets. Wow. I mean, there's a number of Fordham alum that are. So you have the voice of the Nets, the Knicks, the 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 Yankees, the Giants, uh, you know, a, a number of others that are all Fordham alum. So. There was a host of, of folks that got back involved, and um, Tony Rinaldi from, from ESPN is also one. So there's a lot of sports and entertainment folks. you got guys like Denzel Washington who played basketball at Fordham, believe it or not, and gave a commencement speech at Fordham. So we're getting him hopefully back involved. Did you hear so from Denzel? Of, uh, did you get a text from Denzel? Uh, we, I did not. No, <laughs> that's what we're working on. We're not. I'm not going to blow that off. But um, – you know, a number of high-level sports and entertainment folks oh, are Fordham cool. alums. So, you know, it's, it is cool, and, and, and we're excited about the future, and they are as well. So um, there's a lot to be proud of.
congrats on your success in year one. Best of luck to you next year. Uh, I enjoyed this. Uh, hope you're well. Let's do it again. You know, hopefully uh, sometime maybe, you know, during the season next year uh, when you guys are rolling towards an A-10 title and a tournament bid. Uh, and then, and then at that point, I won't ask you, but you'll be headed somewhere beyond that uh, if that happens. Um, but uh, congrats, Keith, on the year. That's awesome. Hey, man, Kevin, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you having me on. I look forward to uh, seeing you soon, man. So thanks so much. I enjoyed that with Keith. Uh, Quite the journey he's had on the way to becoming uh, a D1 head coach for the first time at 42, 43 years old. Most of those guys don't ever get the opportunity uh, to be a head coach at the D1 level. Um, but he's really grinded uh, over the last many years and has had a unique journey considering where it started um, professionally for him. But what a job he did this year at Fordham, a place where nobody's won um, in a long time. 25-8 and eight, uh, and tied for second in the Atlantic 10. All right, uh, that's it for the day. I'll be back tomorrow. The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com